Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Bière sur vin et venin, vin sur bière et belle manière. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian-American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In The Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Jess Levin Conroy, founder and CEO of Carrots and Cake, a wedding planning platform that delivers personal wedding advice to couples. She founded Carrots and Cake in 2013, and six years later, the company works with over 30,000 businesses and has become the go-to resource for couples looking for a better way to plan their weddings. Jess has become a good friend and mentor, so I'm so happy she's here. It isn't exactly a a consumer packaged good on the shelf of Whole Foods, but you have so much to teach, and one of my favorite things about you is that you very candidly and openly talk about your mentors, um, which I think, you know, sometimes people don't talk about how many people they have helping them or how they sometimes need advice from other people. Um, So I'm proud to call you one of mine. And I'm happy that you're here. So welcome. Oh, thanks, Allie. Well, it's a two-way street. I think that's one of the things sometimes about a mentor is it can go both ways. Yeah. I, I Usually the good ones do. I would I agree. Um, so before we get into all of your leadership tips and advice, because today is all about the muscle of leadership, um, I wanted to hear a little bit about you. I always find it really interesting because... I'll just never forget when Pachame wanted to be the general manager of the Yankees. And I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense because he's like a field marketing guy, you know? Right. So you grew up in Laguna and were you, A, always interested in weddings and B, were you always as, you, you know, confident and feisty and kind of driven as you are now? Right. So I'll answer B first. And (laughs) according to everyone I know who's known me since I was a little girl, I was always like this Uh (laughs) from a standpoint of 
I just kind of always had this fire inside of me to try new things, experience new things. And when someone would tell me no, it probably motivated me even more mm-hmm. to say, hold on, hold my hat or hold my, hold my dress and I'll be right back. Right. Um, and I think that a, I was not always interested in weddings. I grew up around, um, small business. My father was an entrepreneur in a local business. And I think that I always was drawn to people building things. That's mm-hmm. kind of why I worked in venture. And so for me, what drew me to weddings wasn't so much the events themselves, but the businesses that are the backbone of this industry. That was really right. what drew me to the space. And how, so fast forward, did you study business in college? I did. I So in undergrad, I was an econ and Spanish major. And then Do I... Do you know I failed econ? <laughs> I think everyone who's listening to this podcast, I say it probably every podcast, I failed econ freshman year. I failed it. Um, I did. I, it, I mean, it, want it, you to know. I think the thing that I liked about it is that it, it's a very logical explanation of business and I love supply and demand and I love that it can influence pricing strategies. Yeah, I no, just, I like it too. I don't know what the heck happened, but I, yeah. I laugh now because there's still certain things that come back to business and I'm like, Oh, the curve, the supply and demand right, curve, right. Um, which is very funny. One of the classes was actually useful, but I think that, um, I think interestingly enough, when it comes to business, so much of what you learn a lot of times is outside the classroom. So I did go back and get my MBA, but I, and I learned a ton when I went to NYU Stern, but I also had the opportunity to sit back and look at what I was doing with my life. My mm-hmm. plan was to go back into investing, but it was through some of the classes and some of the conversations and some of the friends and mentors that I met there right. that really kind of empowered me to, you know, go do what my old boss, Chris Birch, used to always say to me, that I was the worst employee he ever had, um, which he probably still tells people to this day. When a I, compliment? Yes, yeah. it was. Okay. In a lot of ways, it's that, you know, he was basically telling me I was unemployable, but from a standpoint of go do your own thing, right. you don't need to go work for somebody else. So did you work for him while you were getting your MBA or in between? I or? worked for him before. Okay. And then you decided to go back to get a degree. Yes. Assuming that you were going to go back into investing. Yes. And what was it that drew you? I mean, what was it that drew you? Was it, was it that same fascination with watching how people build things, no matter what that thing is, that was like, I want to make my bets on the people I think are building good things. Like, was that the interest in venture to yeah. begin with? It's amazing to be, especially in the way that he invested at the time and we were investing. And that was almost not to date myself, but I guess, you know, 10 years ago mm-hmm. now or 12 years ago when I first started working for him. And, you know, venture wasn't so much what it is today. No, you know? not at all. Facebook was just starting to blow up in a lot of ways. And I think that, the way that he would take every single meeting, the way that he was an entrepreneur and an operator himself, and that was you know, where his funding came from, and the people that would come through the door and you would hear them talking about what they were building. And it was less about the capital, less mm-hmm. about the investing, and more about the watching people chase their dreams. Yep. And it was really interesting. And you know, some of those dreams worked and some of them didn't from a way that you would categorize traditional success, but ultimately right. all of them worked because it's about the experience that you get through the process. Yeah. Can you tell me any... like? any sort of specific things that uh, while you were evaluating other companies to invest in or while you were, you know, actually invested in them that years later having your own company, you're like, oh, I remember this or I remember that or this is a lesson that I reminded myself I didn't want to forget. Anything like that? One of the biggest ones, and it definitely informed what we've built with Carrots and Cake, was investing in brand. So the belief that 
products in some ways ultimately can become commodities where you can do the same thing. But it's the brand that separates you. And something that I learned from Chris and all the people that he was surrounded with was that belief in that a great brand it's not that the product doesn't also need to be great. The product mm-hmm. always needs... Table stakes, as we say. Yeah, yep. it always needs to deliver. But what would draw someone in wasn't just what you were selling, but the story. He used to always talk about this phrase of, it's not so much about you know how you're skiing, but more about how you're standing in line mm. or something. And so yep. I think that that really, for us with Carrots and Cake early on, it was really, what's the story we're trying to tell? What's the brand? It's not just about what it does, but, you know, how are we going to get people to emotionally connect to what we're trying to do? So going back to what you are trying to do, when you launched, you weren't necessarily consumer-facing. You were more about helping venues connect with potential couples, yes? Yes, vendors in general. For us, the very beginning was the problem that we wanted to solve wasn't so consumer-focused. It was... We wanted to build a better way for businesses to do business inside this industry. It was kind of a tipping point when you looked at the way that people were building out platforms in a lot of way. And it used to be the focus was always on the consumer, sort of the end user. And what we found so interesting about weddings was there were half a million local businesses inside the space. And there was an opportunity to build a better, stronger infrastructure for them. And then that would in turn empower the way that consumers were able to do business inside the industry. Um, And that was really what we got excited about. We very quickly realized that to build a brand, you couldn't just walk into some of these business owners and be like, hey, I have something to help you run your business better. You know, no one wants to answer the door when you do that. And so that was kind of how the idea for the platform was born. Right. Let's create a consumer-facing business. Because you weren't Craigslist for the wedding industry. You're not like, put your floral thing (laughs) on my thing and I'll connect you with some brides. Right. You needed to make it sexy for them so that they, similar to, I guess, a resi or an open table, they they distinguish themselves from, you know, yep. I guess a Yelp or something like that by having not only an added benefit for them, but it's kind of cachet to be a part of their their squad. Exactly, exactly. And right. so that was kind of what we built. And so we built this ecosystem on the front end that would still always have the underpinnings of being business first. If you look at it and it's somewhat nuanced, the site itself is really about telling the stories of the businesses and how they helped couples create those events as opposed Mm -hmm. to the story of the couples because there were other places that you can get that. And so we really wanted to differentiate ourselves that way. We also wanted the work to speak for itself. And so if you strip back so much of the site, it's that old school Dean and DeLuca model, which I always loved that business. Yeah, what is that? here's the gray and white and black box and we're going to curate the best and the best for you. But if you really strip out all the products, we're just a house to help curate those products. And that was kind of a bit of our philosophy with building the site. Got it. But ultimately what that did for us was create a platform that to date, there's a couple thousand businesses that join the site every single week, not necessarily because they know exactly what we're doing behind the scenes about the services and the software we can give them, right. but because they're attracted to the brand on the front end. Right. And that in turn means that our cost per acquisition is a lot lower. Our sell is, our conversion rates into local businesses are a lot higher. The churn is a lot lower. So all of those things that you can associate with building a good brand pay themselves forward infinitely. It's very cool. And then as, I mean, you and I have been talking about it because for years, while the while you were speaking to couples, your real customers 
mm-hmm. people that were paying you for your services right. were the venues and the florists and the stationary engravers, mm-hmm. right? But you are we're now starting moving into other things. Yes, we're now starting to realize that while we still have a lot to do in solving how, you know, we can support businesses inside the industry, we've spent the last six years, you know, really understanding how those businesses work and fundamentally understanding how they connect and how they work in teams and ultimately how those teams translate into the way that couples on the front end plan. And so we're really excited because we're starting to test our first consumer products that we believe are really going to fundamentally change the way that people get married. Yeah. And people shop for weddings. I mean, it's, there's so much opportunity inside the space to use, you know, data in a way that it hasn't been done before. And so we're really excited about that. I do think, I mean, this is maybe completely unrelated to what you do, <laughs> but I'm not even planning a wedding. I'm planning someone's birthday party. Right. And I wanted a floral cake. Mm-hmm. I didn't want, you know, a cake with confetti. I didn't want a cake with the picture on it. I didn't want the kind of things that I have very easy access to. Right. And I feel like... I see floral cakes all over the place, Mm -hmm. like everywhere I look. And yet I couldn't figure out where to even look to find the cake I wanted. It was the weirdest thing because they're everywhere. And yet I didn't know where to go to, to just try to find a cake. Right. Well, that's where I think fundamentally that we're at a shift as far as how people consume across the board, regardless of weddings, is that you're no longer going to look. Instead, what's going to happen is you're going to be able to text someone like, hey, where's the best flower cake? Just like you, well, you should have texted me, but you're going to be able to, I can help, we can talk about that afterwards. Um, But you'll be able to text a service that you would use for that, that would say, oh, great, Allie, can you give me the price range and the whatever? And and here are three places that I can recommend can do that for you. That's where we're moving towards. It's so cool. And you have all of that information because you've been working with these thousands and thousands of companies that do all of these things. Right. So you kind of know. And I think what's, I think you said this to me at some point is like, you can kind of guess if I'm looking for that kind of cake, I'm probably looking for this kind of dress. And right. I'm probably looking for this type of honeymoon. Well, you can predictively start to see within taste profiles and within price points how people are going to make certain decisions. It's not to say that it's premeditated because everyone's no. wedding is in some is a totally unique experience. customized, yes. Exactly. Yep. But yes, you can start to sit there and say, okay, they have a certain budget and they've made these two decisions, now based on the data that we have on carrots and cake, we can predictively tell you probably the other 80% of what they're going to do. Okay, Maddie, do you not think this, isn't this so cool? (laughs) It's crazy. It's It's very cool. Um, Okay, we want to talk about leadership. I want to talk about how you've built the team, what you've learned over the last couple of years, and you do write these. Are they monthly emails? Weekly. They're weekly. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. They're good. My, I'll talk about the emails when we get back from a break, but I do want to get into the leadership muscle when we get back. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and a respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. 
Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, I'm back with Jess Levin Conroy from Carrots and Cake. Um, We are talking about leadership today. I feel like um, this is our 34th episode of In the Sauce, which is kind of crazy. And we, you know, I've talked a lot about supply chain and legal and branding and category and market and pricing. Um, And I think little leadership tidbits find their way through, especially when I'm talking to founders. But I haven't had an episode just focused on the actual art and skill and challenge of leading a team. Um, And one thing that I've learned in seven years is that, you know, I think for those of us who consider ourselves pretty nice people, we get along pretty well with most everyone, you know, we're, we're not like raging narcissistic maniacs. We think that leadership is going to be fairly intuitive and that it will come naturally. Um, but I have found that it doesn't always come naturally and that sometimes nice doesn't equate with a good manager. And, um, sometimes empathic doesn't equate with clear, you know, kind of directives. And ultimately, what your team wants from you as a leader is very different than what your friends want from you as a friend. So what I love is these, you know, at first I didn't love them so much candidly, Jess, because my team (laughs) would be getting your emails every week on leadership and forwarding them to me, (laughs) which I was like, is this a hint? Like, are you trying to tell me something? Or is it like, we, yeah, you kind of do this, although no one ever said that. So at the beginning, I was a little bit like, well, huh. um, but now I actually look forward to getting them every week too. So I love the fact that you write them. They're very digestible. Um, they always kind of speak to what's going on that week, which is kind of weird. I guess that's called evergreen right? in terms of content. I think part of it is because I don't batch it. So I actually do write them traditionally every Monday or Tuesday evening based on what's actually happening. Yes. And, you know, from conversations we've had with the team to experiences I've had in business to those, you know, WTF moments that literally happen 12 times a day when Mm -hmm. you run a business. Um, And I just jot them down and it started, it's funny, it started out as a journal to myself. Um, Uh And one of the, one of the first team members we ever had who was amazing, he, you know, read one once and was like, we should be putting these out there to the businesses. You're probably going through the same thing that they're going through. Right. Especially because if your customers are other businesses, they all have teams. Right. I mean, it makes so much sense. And it was one of those ways too, for us in the very beginning, we didn't want to just do a newsletter that was, you know, beautiful wedding images. And mm-hmm. so we 
thought about how do we create something that's actually going to help our community. And so that was where we're going to write these little business insights, which, you know, sometimes we're data on the industry and it's definitely evolved into a little bit more of my personal journal. Right. Um, which is funny because friends like Allie, every once in a while will reply back and be like, I'd love to hear the backstory on this one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sounds like you had a good Friday. Right. Um, do you, aside, so we're going to get into a couple of the topics, but I know this is putting you on the spot a little bit, but do you have any sort of overarching advice for people who are founding companies? Generally, they're going to be my size or smaller. They're not going to have big teams yet. Right. Um, any kind of, these are some red flags, like don't do this. And right. any sort of like, this is a good way to start building that leadership muscle. You're not going to be able to do pull-ups yet, but you're going to be able to, you know, right. pick up a dumbbell if I, that's a good. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that I keep, being reminded of every single year is something that another um, really powerful businesswoman mentor and friend of mine said to me once is that it all it takes is one not right culture fit to ruin your whole culture. Yeah. And so even if that means that you're an army of one, if you're not standing for your culture when it's just you, the first person you bring in the door is not going to understand the culture. And when yeah. you grow that to five and then you grow that to 10 or you grow that to 15, all it takes is one person. And I think that that dovetails into the second thing that I keep learning as well and relearning because we're always learning is that your instinct is generally right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll never remember the first person I ever hired. I was 24 years old mm -hmm. and I was terrified and I was talking to this mentor that gave me this advice and then told me to read a bunch of Jack Welch books, who is a great author on leadership. But she said, you know, you're not going to know. People can interview really great. Yep. And you'll have a gut feeling about them. But it's not until they actually get in the door and show up on that first day of work that you're actually going to know what you got. Yep. And usually you can tell within two hours of them being there whether yep. or not it's going to work. And it was such pressing advice because I remember, so I hired that first person at 23 when I was 24. And I knew within five hours they were wrong yeah and ended up having to let that young woman go when how soon like two weeks wow. I gave it two weeks okay um and I kept trying and I, it didn't work and it's been the same thing with our company you know there's been people you know we've grown the team you know we have had a couple of people that have been there with us for a really long time you know the core team that I have right now everyone's been there for almost five years, but then there are people that come and go and, you know, float through, float out. Um, I'm really good though at keeping people. And I think that's, you know, the last thing I would say with leadership, but that idea that, you know, there's been people that I've brought in and they've interviewed phenomenally and they show up on the first day and I'm like, Oh wow, mm -hmm. this is not the right culture fit. And the mistakes I've made is when I've allowed that person to stay. To stay. Um, that actually, I would just want to use a really annoying word, unpack that for just a yeah, couple minutes. Of course. What? Your therapist says unpack that. <laughs> Let's unpack that. Oh my gosh. I'm going to start um, using that. Okay. By the way. <laughs> um, okay. The first thing that you said was making sure there's a culture fit. And I think that actually a one before one is define your culture. Right. Even if it is just you, what is your culture? We were right. talking about this with product development the other day too. People are asking questions about product development and it all ladders up to 
what are your values? Right. What what are you actually trying to put out into the world and how? Because not only is the product going to represent that, but how you talk about the product, how you how you market the product, right. what you put on the package, all of it goes back up to this like what is your mission? Right. Who what is your vision and how does your product or service or place fit into that, right? Mm-hmm. So A, define what that is, even if it's just for you, right? And and for some people, that kind of comes naturally because they're creating this because they have a mission or a vision. Right. And they're building whatever they're building to sort of, you know, I don't know, take that mission into the world. Some people have a product first. They're not that interested in the mission. Right. You know, the product is, the mission of the product is to be the best fill in the blank. To me, that's not really a mission. Right. 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 Um, and so I think for whether, you know, wherever you are on that spectrum, do spend some time thinking about it. Think about what you want the culture to be like based on the values of your company, right? right. If, you know, in our case, we, we, the first word in our mission statement is, you know, building confidence, right? right. So if we don't want to create a culture that builds confidence, then our mission is completely misaligned with our product and right. our, and our place. Um, so that's a, B, um, going back to what you said, is someone else said it in here a couple of uh, episodes ago. It's uh, hire slow, fire fast. Yep. So even if you really need that salesperson or that field marketing person or you really need someone to develop that thing, hire them on a part-time basis. Hire them as a consultant first. Get to know them. Take your time. Let them take their time. Mm -hmm. If they're not a culture fit for you, 99.999% you're not a culture fit for them either. So let them take the time to figure you out also. And then the third thing you said, which I loved was trust your instincts. I can say personally, my biggest mistakes were forcing that little voice to be quiet. Always. And, and, and deciding that somehow because my little voice was, was chiming up that there was a lesson in it for me to learn that somehow I needed to be, you know, I, my, my insecurity was always, I'm sort of friendly and optimistic and I need real business people who like are really, they're serious and they don't, you know, like I use too many exclamation points and emojis and they like Excel. And, and that was always sort of like, I, I'm not serious enough. I need someone to balance me out. Right. Um, and you don't, no, you don't. I mean, the biggest mistakes I've ever made are when I have not trusted my gut. And I think part of that comes with experience and learning, too, because I would I would say that, you know, early on in my career, when you asked that question, was I always like this? I was probably like this to a fault, where you think you know everything and, mm-hmm. you know, you don't know the difference between knowing what you do know and knowing what you don't know. And right. that's, you know, a really valuable lesson and something that I learned, you know, in my early 20s that got knocked into me through business as, you know, learning enough to know when to say, I don't know the answer to that. Um, But I think that when you grow with your business, you know, in the beginning, it's about surrounding yourself with people who might know how to do things better than you. But it doesn't mean that their instincts should be trusted before yours. And I think that that's the difference. Right. You know, you can have the best lawyer in the room or you can have the best, you know, banker in the room or the best analyst or whatever that is for your business, you know, the best packer, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but 
they know how to do what they know how to do, but it's a, your vision and your gut instinct that's going to help them together with you create something special. And that's the last thing with leadership is yep. that of everyone that we've ever worked with through our company in the last you know six years, I have a relationship with every single person except probably one that, you know, wasn't a culture fit, you know, Mm -hmm. and we saw it on our side, they didn't on theirs. And so, you know, unfortunately there's not so much you can do there to fix that sometimes, but every other person that we've worked with, you can call because I think that's the thing that's so interesting is like, as your network grows, as your business grows, you don't know when you're going to need those relationships. And that's the the thing that's so interesting about hiring and firing is the person that's right for right now mm-hmm. might not be the person that's right for forever. You know, yeah. our first hire, our employee number one, was the most amazing hire. There is no way our business would be where it is today without that hire. But after two years, yeah. you know, and every hard, hard, hard battle had been fought, you know, it was time for them to do something else. Well, in the restaurant world, they, I mean, it's very common to have an opening team and an operating team. Right. It's, I love that. I didn't know that. It's very. It's a very standard procedure because people who open things are like on fire, right? And they got to get the thing built and it's got to be on budget and on time and people are coming and friends and family starts next week. And so they're just like maniacs, right? Right. Um, right. And A, temperament-wise, B, skill-wise. And then the people that operate it, it's a completely different skill set, right? It's... Yep, it's not the same thing, and those two things are very rarely the, the same, same type of person and the same skill sets. And by the way, opening people hate operating; they get bored to tears. And operating people can't deal with the uncertainty and the mania of opening. So you kind of want different people at right. different times for different things. I'm going to use that, by the way. That's a good newsletter. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you can tell. Yes. And, and then, then I can, can be like, see. You can tell your team. You can yeah. be like, actually, She got I. that from me. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that you said in the car that I thought was actually a cardinal rule of leadership was to be able to tell your team not just what you want, but what you're looking for. I really like the way you put that because... I feel like, especially in startup world, especially when everyone's wearing multiple hats, you know, sometimes you're like, blah, 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 blah. And you assume that your team knows exactly what you mean and is in your brain and, (laughs) you know, they can read every part of your mind. um, And then somehow or another, something doesn't happen the way that you wanted it to. And ultimately, I mean, I sort of take the stance and I think you do too, that that's ultimately on us 100%. as the manager, as the leader, because we haven't been clear with what success looks like for said project. Right. So speak to that a little bit. Right. So what we were chatting about in the car was ultimately that how do you not just tell your team what you want them to do, but also teach them for the next round. And so something that I've learned and, you know, leadership is something that you have to have time for. And, you know, on a good day, I'm great on this. At a bad day, I'm like, do that, do that, do that. No, it needs to be done yesterday. And you you don't have time to explain. But what what I've learned over time is that instead of just telling my team what I want, but involving them in the problem that I'm trying to solve, that means that a lot of times 
we get there together because what I've learned is that if I just tell someone exactly how I want them to do something and Mm -hmm. I don't take the time to explain to them why I want it done that way, they're not learning. They're not growing because inevitably something that you said that, you know, I'm sure my team, if they listen to this, is like, oh my God, because sometimes I'm like, I meant red. And when I meant red, I actually meant, you know, that shade of, you know, but it's, you, you want your team to be in your head. Yeah. And the only way you can get them to be in your head is if you can teach them to think the way that you think. And so the way that you do that is by getting them involved in the problems that you're trying to solve and being able to have the time and the headspace to say, hey, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. Here's the solution that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Right. Or is there a better way that we can get there? And again, that doesn't happen all the time. You know, sometimes it happens organically and sometimes it happens more like, you know, I messed up and this needs to happen yesterday and then remind me a week from now and I'll tell you why I wanted to do that and we can do it the next way. But right. something else that you said too is, you know, for us with Carrots and Cake, we always talk about culture because culture shifts too, like your mission, yeah. you know, can shifts evolve over time. And for us, I think the biggest thing that we've defined our culture as is we because we is a team culture and the thing for us going back to weddings and the foundations is weddings are a team sport if you look Mm -hmm. at them it's not one person and the same thing with our business so when you have a culture of we it's not one person's mistake it's everybody's mistake Mm -hmm. and so the same thing with the learning it's not one person telling everybody to what to do but instead we collectively together trying to figure out how to get there now there is a balance to that because, you know, the other thing that you touched on a second ago that I thought was really funny is, you know, when it comes to leadership, what your friends want from you and, you know, what your company wants from you is not necessarily the same thing. And so the one thing with having a culture of we is also finding that balance because at right. the end of the day... They don't want to hear about your menstrual cycle. Yeah. And also, yeah. too, at the end of the day, you know... <laughs> is that what you meant? Well, yes. But also what I meant, too, is when you have a culture of we and everybody has, you know, the opportunity to have a voice, which is something that we stand behind. Right. What we've also learned, though, is there has to be, you know, parameters on that voice. Right. Because at the end of the day, there is one person who yes. is... Oh, I see what the, you leader and so that <laughs> but you know we can talk about menstrual cycles too no, I but thought, yes so but there are two pieces right because yep. I think one of the things like what I thought you meant when you were starting was I remember the first time I wasn't invited to someone's kid's birthday party and I was like upset because right. I felt like I thought we were friends and he was like I don't, you don't want to, no, you don't want to come to my kid's birthday party. Like, you know, I I get it, but, and he was right. Like, I don't actually want the pressure of having to have all of these relationships and I don't want to overshare with my team and I do need to have boundaries because there is some, there is a respect, Yep. right? People want to work for someone or for a team that is being led by someone that they And there is one clear vision. And then that's the second thing too, is like internally you want that, but also what you're putting out into the world does need to have a clear voice and a clear vision. And most likely it's the founder's vision. I mean, in, in, I would imagine most cases. Right. But let's go to one of your, um, newsletters, because I do think that it corresponds to what you were just saying, which is the uh, don't confuse urgent with important. Because I think that I, I, if there's one that, that completely embodies startup culture, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I've seen some of my team's little notebooks that they keep and they have their to-do list and then they have their alley list, mm-hmm. which is a little <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> But it's true because I'll be like, what about the blah, like in the middle of something? And it feels important to me, but actually 
what they need to be doing is renegotiating the freight rate. You know, right. I'm it's there, but how do you how do you help not confusing the the urgent with the important? Right. Um, I don't know to be totally honest with you <laughs> because it's something that I'm dealing with daily. You know, I was I was running off out of the office to meet you. I was talking to my right hand, and she was like, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "No, I'm totally overwhelmed. I have a hundred things I didn't get done." You know, and you look at your list. I think the one thing that I keep trying to do is. Every night before I go to bed, I'm making a list of what I'm doing tomorrow, of the things that are, you know, really mattering. So mm-hmm. not looking at my calendar from a perspective, but more of that high level vision stuff, yep. you know, of where we're of where helpful. we're trying to go. And then the first thing I do in the morning when I get to the office is I look at that vision thing list based thing, vision list, <laughs> um, based on, you know, what's on my desk and try to plug those into time slots right. on my calendar so that I have time for those. So that's something that I'm trying to do. The other thing that I do is every night before I leave the office, I look at my calendar for the next day. Yep. Um, and if you're listening to this and, you know, we've rescheduled a meeting, I'm apologize, but, you know, <laughs> trying to be protective with what we're trying to do as a company right now, we're in a major growth phase as far as hiring people and what we're trying to accomplish. And you can't do it all, no matter yeah. what anybody tells you. You know, whenever somebody says to me, like, what, what's the one thing I could help you with right now? I'm like, clone me, right. because then it would be great. But, you know, there's I do every single night look at what I'm doing the next day. And if it's not going to move the needle forward or it's not something that right. really matters to me, it gets pushed. Yep. You know, and I do that every night and then I do that every week. Because I'm not a canceler five minutes before. You know, I don't believe yep. in that unless obviously circumstances I know, because happen. that's the casualty of being too casual. Right. <laughs> that's another, <laughs> yes, one, that's of your another one of my newsletters. Um, <laughs> but, you know, ultimately I think that it's about figuring out and prioritizing you know, what's going to actually move the needle forward and then what actually matters. And then I, the last thing I do is I keep a little Google Doc mm-hmm. that has everything that I'm working on. And then every week I put numbers next to them and then I data sort by numbers. Can you define data sort? Uh, yes, I can for those non-friendly Excel users out there. I just showed my, you know, business, yeah. my business card. Um, essentially, it's you can go into Google Docs, you can make a list. Um, and then on one column, you can have the items that you're doing. And on the other column on the right, and again, another one of my mentors slash best friends was the one that told me to do this when I was like, I'm totally overwhelmed. Um, and on the right, I put numbers next to them. And then I data... Like numbers of importance? Yep. So like there's priority levels, one, two, and three. One being like that should have been done yesterday. Two being okay. Three being like that's a nice to have, but a not need to have. Got it. And then I will hit the little Excel function that says data sort. And so now all the priority, all the things that are a one show up at the top. Wow. And then there's the twos and then there's the threes. And so I do that every, every week. And if you find that there's a misalignment between your calendar and your numbers... I'm canceling stuff yeah, and I'm having a conversation and it's something that it's, you know, you want to be a reliable person. So that's definitely something that I, you know, struggle with. You are very reliable. Thank you. But it's a, you know, it's a conversation I have, you know, with my team is there's certain things and, you know, it's managing that your time, you know, arguably all as entrepreneurs, as people in general, that is our single most valuable resource. Yep. And so what I look at from a standpoint is oftentimes it's a conversation when all of a sudden we're looking at something like, and we're having to rejigger it all. It's okay. Well, have we rejiggered that person five times? Because if we have, that's that's not going to burn a bridge. Yep. And you know, or does that need to happen, or does that not need to happen? Can that be a phone call? You know, that's something else that I've gotten um, better at. Is one of the one of my personal values is anyone that emails me and takes the time to email me personally, I will respond to. Yep. Anyone who, in a thoughtful way, wants to pick my brain, mm-hmm. I will get back to you. I used to love the idea of getting to meet those people in person. And that's something that I learned from one of my first bosses. I don't necessarily have the bandwidth for that right now because then it, you know, sacrifices the company. And so learning to take 
calls. opportunities that are calls instead of, hey, I'd absolutely love to meet with you right now. I'm going to take that advice. You know, I can yeah. do 15 minutes with you because what you start to realize is, you know, it's not just that 45 minute coffee. It's the 20 minutes there. It's the 20 minutes back. Yeah. It's the prepping for that. It's the, you know. And in my case, it's moving people out of rooms to accommodate meetings that yep. I'm having and, and sitting in the kitchen when people are trying to get food out. And yep. you no, know, that's really helpful advice. Okay. I, there are so many more. People just have to... How do they get the newsletter if they want to? Um, you can email newsletter at carrotsandcake.com and you can, we'll automatically subscribe you. Okay. Even if you're not getting married or run a bridal, Oh yeah, they're just, they're just business insights. Yeah. There's no wedding advice They have in there. nothing to do with <laughs> getting married. Um, okay. Can you think of, as we close, sort of, I'm sure you've had many, but one moment where you feel like you have... If, if like Oprah had a hidden camera... And you got caught in the act of doing just an amazing job being a leader. Can you think of one? I don't know why Oprah had to be there. I don't know either. Now I'm like really nervous. (laughs) And I'm like, what am I wearing? Um, (laughs) Or just a great moment. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that I love most is, you know, we try, our team is, you know, now spread out all over the place. And we try to get everybody together at least in one room once a year, which is so hard when you're managing, you know, that many people's schedules and everyone has families and et cetera. And mm-hmm. I think that when we're all together and you look around people that all believe in kind of what you're building, mm-hmm. I don't think that, that there's anything more special than that. Yeah, I agree. Other than Jack Welch, is there a leadership book that you do recommend? I absolutely loved Phil Knight's Shoe Dogs because I thought he was so honest about building a business. And yeah. I love how he was basically running out of money the entire time because that <laughs> could not be more of a reality. Right. When you're you know building a business, no matter how much money you raise, you're always looking at where yes. the next check is coming from. It's true. Um, so I loved, and I loved how he also, you know, built it and wasn't sure what he was doing. It was yeah. so open and honest yeah, about that. Yeah, he was that. very vulnerable in that yeah, book. Yeah, no, sure, really I just, liked. it was, it's my favorite book that I've read. And then I love all those, you know, you would call them, businessy books, but you know, anything that talks about corporate espionage, like barbarians at the gate or, you know, <laughs> really? Oh yeah. That's so funny. Because I just think that all those business dynamics, like I, first of all, I think that, you know, there is nothing, what happens in real life when it comes to business, you can't even dream it up. And right. I think that that's, that's true. you know, amazing. And I think that all the books that talk about, you know, the way business is done, there's certain fundamentals that haven't changed ever, ever. Yep. And whether it's, it's power dynamics, essentially, hundred percent. Right? And yeah. so whether that's relationship building or deals that happen behind the scenes or one of, you know, the worst realities that you learn, the older you get is that there's no such thing as a level playing field. Mm-hmm. You know, you see that in all those books. And I think that, you know, as entrepreneurs and business owners, sometimes we walk in the room thinking that the field is always going to be level that we're pitching the same thing that the other person is. And yes, ultimately no there's no, yep. there's no such thing as a level playing field. And once you acknowledge that you're like, okay, Trying to make it game on. Right. Yep. Um, totally. So Ooh, game on great way <laughs> to end. Um, okay. Jess, thank you so much for being here. Thanks there for having me. So, I have notes all over my paper. I wish everyone <laughs> could see this. Um, we are back for the summer season. We missed two weeks, I think. So it wasn't that long of a hiatus. And I'm <laughs> sure you guys were waiting with bated breath for this, uh, for this episode, but we're here for the next eight or nine in a row, except for a couple of Memorial day or something like that. So I have a bunch of great guests coming on in the next couple of week, uh, weeks. And I'm so happy I got to start it off with you, Jess. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you for another episode of in the sauce. Thanks, Allie.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.